This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Ladies and gentlemen, uh... can I please have your attention? Dear listeners, it's Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by the Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Um, it is Groundhog Day. Of course, by the time you listen to this, it'll be Groundhog Day plus one, which is uh, different than Godzilla plus one. But I have a special thing for Groundhog Day because it's like I wrote this piece for the Mac, for National Review 19 years ago. Um, which freaks me out because uh, I remember vividly writing it and um, it doesn't feel like 19 years ago. And it's, I don't know if it's the most, and famous is the wrong word, because, you know, uh, I haven't written a lot of famous things. Um, certainly not a lot of famous magazine pieces and famous is a very, very relative term, but like of pieces that bring people bring up to me or that are associated with me, it's like in the top three or five, you know, there's the Anwar piece, um, where I went up to Alaska, maybe a couple others. And, uh, and I liked it and people liked it. And, um, uh, and so every Groundhog Day, you know, I, I used to post it in the corner over at National Review. I kind of wish they would keep that tradition alive, but I kind of get it why they wouldn't. So I always post it in, on Twitter every year um, sort of like every year I post the eulogy to my dad around his, around Father's Day. I'm hardly thinking about it. I think I'm going to write about this today. Um, I've been on a bit of a Nietzsche kick. You may recall if you listen to the Peter Berkowitz, uh, episode, which really gratified that so many people liked it because, you know, I have this rule that I try to stick to here, which is I, I talk about and ask about the things, you know, and sometimes I deviate from this rule because, you know, there are things in the news and there are things you have to talk about and all that. But, you know, I try to have conversations with guests about the stuff I'm interested in on the assumption that if I'm interested in it, it'll come through as an interesting thing to the audience. And also, like, I had to be kind of bullied into doing this podcast in the first place. And um, sort of like uh, with the G-File, if I can't do it the way I want to do it, um, for the most part, obviously, again, there are going to be exceptions. Um, I don't want to do it. And, um, so I'm totally open to the idea that maybe I could have saved me grilling Peter Berkowitz about, uh, the Richard Rory's theory that Nietzsche and Heidegger and William James and John Dewey were kindred philosophers, um, till later in the episode rather than opening with it. You know, because you want to save the really juicy, sexy stuff to the end to keep people listening. But um, 
I'm just grateful. We got a lot of nice feedback about it. And um, people really like Peter. Part of the reason I bring that up is I've been on a bit of a Nietzsche kick lately. Um, wrote a piece called We're All Living in Nietzsche's World or something like that a couple of weeks ago. I'm by no means an expert on Nietzsche. Um, I took a couple classes on Nietzsche in college. And every now and then I'll dip into some of his stuff. And I had to read a, Nietzsche's theory of resentment. Uh, which is just the fancy French way of saying resentment. It's a big part of Schumpeter's theory about why capitalism is doomed. And it's a big part of my argument in Suicide of the West, even though a lot of it got pared back in the editing. Um, and so I read a bunch of the genealogy of, of morals um, last few years. And then every now and then I'll dip back into other stuff. Anyway, it occurred to me because it's Groundhog Day, you know, one of the central interpretations of the movie Groundhog Day, is that it's, uh, it's all a play on Nietzsche's theory of the eternal return or what usually gets called eternal recurrence. And the basic idea is that, um, I think it first comes up in the gay science, but then basically thus spoke Zarathustra or also Sprach. Zarathustra. Um, it's sort of the central point of it. And the idea of eternal recurrence is like, as Nietzsche puts it, I think in the gay science, but probably also in Zarathustra, imagine if a demon came to you and said, you're going to relive this life for all eternity. Every event, every choice that you've made, you'll make again over and over and over again for eternity. Um, and he says, would you consider this the most, again, paraphrasing from memory, like, would you consider this a damnable curse or would you consider this a divine gift? And there's lots of debates about, like, what the eternal, whether Nietzsche meant it literally or figuratively. I think he certainly meant it figuratively, but there's a debate about whether he also thought it was literally true. Um, and um, as sort of a cosmological thing, I have, I, I have no expertise on this. I just know what I've, what I've read. I should also say that Nietzsche didn't invent eternal recurrence. This is something he picked up and, well, I shouldn't say he picked it up. It's something that he was certainly aware that it was in, I think it was in Stoicism and some of that kind of stuff. You know, it goes back in, into antiquity, this idea. And anyway... But the figurative part of it, the sort of mental ex mental experiment, thought experiment, mental exercise, heuristic, whatever you want to call it, behind it is that it's a way to ask yourself, are you living? Well, okay, this is my reading of it, again, because Nietzsche gets really complicated and controversial about different, diverse interpretations and the use and abuse of Nietzsche and all that kind of stuff. So my interpretation of it, which I think is pretty well mainstream, is that it's at least in part a way to think about how you lived your life, right? Did you make the right choices, the bold choices? You know, Nietzsche cares more about boldness and heroics and will to power and all that kind of stuff than I do. But regardless, by your own values, um, did you act with, I think as Nietzsche would put it, necessity, right? Did you make, did you make the, the choices that you had to make at every turn and did these redound to your satisfaction, your glory, whatever, right? Or as they might say in a Hallmark card, would you do it all over again, right? 
and or would you do it all over again any differently? Uh, there are hard versions of this and soft versions of this. I think it's not a terrible question to ask yourself. It's sort of like John Rawls's um, veil of ignorance. I think it's a really useful thought experiment. I just don't think it necessarily um, should be your credo, right? That should define how you make every decision or how you approach every public policy thing. But, you know, part of the problem you get with people who are really into philosophy is they, they think that if something is true or profound or deeply insightful in some other way, they overinterpret it. They, they, they maximize its impact and import and, and um, control over their thinking when you can say, yeah, you know, that's an interesting way of thinking about things and that's probably useful in these circumstances, but you know, not in these circumstances. And so I find the eternal return thing a useful exercise that has that shed some real light on your thinking and all that kind of stuff. Um, anyway, I'll probably I think I'm going to write more about this today. But back to Groundhog Day, you can see why you know theories of of Nietzsche's eternal return um, are often you know inferred from a movie where you know uh, this guy Phil Connors spends a near well, fun with concepts. You can't really say near eternity. It's like you can't say nearly infinite because that that line just keeps going. And once you s stop following it, the distance between you and the end of infinity just starts increasing infinitely, right? But apparently the original idea, according to Harold Ramis, was that he was trapped in his Punxsutawney purgatory for 10,000 years. I can't remember why, but apparently it was more like 10, I think it was supposed to be more like 10 years in the movie. We only see on the screen him repeat 34 or 38 days or something like that. But it's implied, obviously, that 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 lot more time has been spent than the time we see on the screen. And they, I got to say, they do that very well. This is one of these things that is, I mean, I, I think it's one of the best movies ever made, but um, this is one of my peeves about a lot of movies and TV shows where you can tell that the, the producers or the writers or the director or whoever, they think a lot of time has lapsed between scenes, but they don't communicate it well to the audience. Worst example of this was probably in like of something I've seen recently that still bothers me was Game of Thrones in the later seasons where they just didn't take the time to give these little tells that more time had elapsed um, for these characters than we were informed, right? So like Arya Stark, she becomes this master super warrior with all of this training with all these weapons and we don't really see how that process unfolds properly um even worse was when the you know the expedition goes north of the wall and they're stuck on that island and they're waiting for uh, the dragons to come and save them and it all feels like it happened in a few hours which is like i mean like at the time there were lots of people saying and F-16 would take this long to get here, and dragons don't fly as fast as F-16s. Anyway, in the movie, Phil Connors lives life over and over and over and over and over again of one day, Groundhog Day, obviously. Um, and it's kind of wild when you think about it. I mean, think of uh, what lots of movies have had a big cultural impact in terms of, you know, getting 
certain lines or phrases into the vernacular. Um, but I've been trying to think, and maybe there are examples of it. Um, is there another movie that has similarly redefined the meaning of a term or a day? You know, it's like when you say Groundhog Day to most people, I don't think they think the day of the year where they look at the large varmint's shadow. I mean, they think that when you think about, oh, Friday is Groundhog Day, you know, because that contextualizes it. But for the other 364 days of the year, when you say, oh, man, it's Groundhog Day, the, that meaning comes entirely from the movie, right? That, that didn't exist before the movie, which is just impressive and shows you its cultural impact, since I am sure there are lots of people who never saw the movie who still use the phrase that way. Um... Feel free to put in comments examples of other cultural transformations or impacts. I'm sure there are some. You know, I mean, I can think of famous phrases that come from things. But anyway, this does seem to be pretty high on the list of successful things. Anyway, so in the movie, um, Phil Connors repeats the events every single day for X amount of days. And he goes in a pretty wretched, ironic, deracinated you know, product of late capitalism, um, as some on the left might put it, or, you know, uh, a, a soulless, alienated Western man, as some on the post-liberal right might put it. And by living the same day over and over again and learning to be um, other-directed rather than self-interested, self-centered, he learns to find joy and happiness. And I think there's a real... Um, conservative slash classical liberal message to be found in that. But I, I, I don't want to keep going on that because I am, I, I, now I've convinced myself I'm going to write about this. So my apologies if I overlap a little bit. But the Nietzsche part, right? So Nietzsche's like eternal return. And this gets to this idea that, you know, in the movie, which I don't think is strictly speaking Nietzsche and there's too much other stuff going on and there's too much, you know, it's, it's a comedy. Um, but it's a useful way of contextualizing one interpretation of eternal recurrence in the sense that by the end of the movie, by completely becoming other directed and, and selfless, he becomes truly happy by, you know, inference at least. I think he ends up loving all of his decisions and would do them all over and over and over again because that's clearly what he's been doing for a very, very, very long time. And... Um, this, I think, is sort of a, it's a useful way to sort of ground, sorry, ground, groundhog, um, to, to center Nietzsche's understanding of eternal returns, re recurrence is that it's, you know, part of it is this idea that, that if you live the right way, it's a, it's a really strange way to think about this, but you kind of take free will out of the equation if you live the same time over and over again and learn from your decisions, which of course that's part of the problem with the heuristic with, with this whole idea is that we don't, we don't learn from the quintillion times we've relived every single day, according to this theory, because we don't have any memory of it, but it's a way of thinking about like, if you did, if you were like Phil Connors and in each situation through trial and error, you figured out what the right thing to do was, it would take the choices away from you because you have to do the right thing. And I'm not sure that that's, by any stretch, Nietzsche's morality, but I think it is one of the 
upshots of, of this thinking about this is that, I mean, he might define the right choice or necessity different than I do, but like this is where I think some Christian ethics and Jewish ethics come into it, you know, and this is where some of the older conservative notions about free will and individual liberty are. It's sort of one of the cornerstones of, of, of fusionism, which is this idea that, you know, virtue cannot be compelled. It must be freely chosen to be virtuous. If you know what the virtuous decision is, you have no choice but to do it. And that's very liberating. The problem is, of course, in real life, knowing what the right thing to do is, sometimes it happens, you know, for sure. But often, you know, it's hard to figure out. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. All right, so I'm not going to do the Taylor Swift stuff. I wrote the Wednesday G-File about it. I'm not going to do it at length. I'm not going to get too deep into it. We did a, we had a good, because Steve wasn't there, we could really get into the nitty gritty about a lot of this on the Dispatch podcast. It was fun. Um, it was me, Sarah, and Mike Warren. I do think it's interesting that basically Sarah was making this point that nobody, even among her super ultra MAGA friends who are in real life, buy into these incredibly stupid um, conspiracy theories about how the Super Bowl is going to be rigged and how the entire NFL was in on this. I mean, this is like one of the core problems with all of these kinds of conspiracy theories is the number of people who have to be in on it and keep a secret is just so huge that, it, you know, it's one of these things you know, like I talk about in Suicide of the West, about looking at politics or life as if it's a form of entertainment, as if it's some sort of story or movie on a screen, is you get to edit out the real life stuff that make movies fun, but also impossible, you know? And so Vivek Ramaswamy, you know, floating this idea, this prediction that the Super Bowl is fixed all to highlight the engagement between Travis Kelsey and, and Taylor Swift. Um, it's just, it's so ass achingly stupid. Anyway, uh, the only point I would make here is that, um, cause I, again, I wrote about it a bunch. I kind of like what I had to write. So just one point that maybe people didn't get to, cause it was at the end. I think it's important to remember that, Conspiracy theorizing and paranoia have been a mainstream thing in American life forever. I'm not saying the, main, the whole mainstream has been paranoid and conspiracy minded, um, but I do think there is, uh, and I, I got to say, I've been reading this great book by uh, Jesse Walker over at Reason, American Paranoia. It's kind of changed my views on some things about it, about this stuff. Um, and I, I want to write about this stuff more at length. And I, I'll, I'll get, I'll invite Jesse on here. He should have been on here before anyway. You know, my standard complaint about Richard Hofstetter's 
the paranoid style um, in American politics, very famous essay, people invoke it all of the time, is that it fundamentally just looked rightward and defined the paranoid style as essentially a right-wing phenomenon. I've been arguing for a very long time that the paranoid style is also a left-wing phenomenon because it's an American phenomenon. But I always um, ascribed it to the fringe, right? To the fever swamps, to the people at the outer edges of politics. And Walker makes a very good point and a pretty good case, at least so far, that that's the wrong way to think about it. That it's been in the it's been in the center lane of American politics too. It's just that we don't call them conspiracy theories when people in elite institutions succumb to their paranoia. We sometimes, usually in retrospect, call them moral panics, where you know elites freak out about something. I, I think the sort of Black Lives Matter moment was, uh, not to say there's no substance to all that stuff, obviously there is, but the George Floyd Black Lives Matter stuff, the big chunk of that, was essentially an elite moral panic. Big chunks of the pandemic were elite moral panic. The child sex abuse stuff in the 1980s, that was a bit of an elite moral panic. Sarah was talking about, uh, you know, freaking out over video games causing violence. That was an elite moral panic. Now, they don't always take the form of conspiracy theories per se, but sometimes they do, right? And the conspiracy theory is that the unwashed, the people on the fringes are dangerous, right? It is sort of the inverse side of all my complaints about populism. You know, the people who think that the people who really disagree with them on the ground are a threat to democracy or all that kind of stuff. Anyway, I think it's some, that's one point that's worth thinking about. Another point, which I'm going to be returning to a lot, and I know I've written about a lot already, is big chunks of the American right now, aesthetically, psychologically, commercially, um, and of course politically, are more reminiscent of the 60s new left and the 60s radical counterculture um, than I ever imagined possible. It's funny, when, when Roger Ayer back in the day wrote that book, Crunchy Cons, we got into some fights about it. I disagreed with him on some of it. But the sort of crunchy cons he were talking about is, were decent sort of mellow hippie conservatives. The, there's, there's always been this, you know, split in sort of lefty, hippie, counterculture, tune in, turn out, you know, drop off, whatever, you know, all that stuff. Basically between the violent and the peaceful, you know, and, at, and certainly at the extremes, but also just sort of culturally the people who were sort of really angry at the system and wanted to overthrow the system and people who were just sort of like, leave me alone, let me handle, you know, let me do my own thing. Yeah, okay, the system's corrupt and I hate the draft, but like, let's get high and not pay any attention to all of that, right? Um, I remember the first time I went to Taos, New Mexico, I expected it to be more like body shop hi hippie than Charles Manson hippie. But there was a lot of Charles Manson hippiness where, from what I saw, and I just thought that was kind of interesting, and I often think about that. Anyway, I think a lot of the American right today, the non-very online, right? I mean, the very online right, um, the, the, the super Trumpy, the people who know what time it is, all these kinds of people, philosophically, programmatically, um, psychologically, 
it's real horseshoe theory stuff about the 60s radicals. And it makes sense because once you decide you're a radical, you're a radical. And the differences between left-wing radicals and right-wing radicals are much smaller than you think they are because the whole point of conservatism is not to be radical. And the internalization of the idea that the, the current system should be overthrown and we'll figure out what to build on the rubble, well, that's a left-wing thing. And for most of my life, I thought it was, in the Anglo-American context, purely a left-wing thing. And that was one of the assumptions I had built into liberal fascism. It was that that approach of tearing it all down, of starting over at year zero, that is sort of quintessentially left-wing because I always equated utopianism as a left-wing thing. And I don't think I have to, would have to rewrite a lot of this stuff because that's how I defined these terms when I wrote that book. And those terms had real legitimacy and plausibility and evidence behind them. And there wasn't a lot of tear it all down radicalism on the American right. There were forms of American radicalism, violent radicalism, Timothy McVeigh and all that kind of stuff on the, that the left wanted to describe as right wing and often did. And part of my argument was they weren't right wing, right? Because first of all, the, I mean, they certainly weren't conservative. You know, this distinction between right-wing and conservative is just, it's becoming more and more crucial, um, which bothers me greatly. But, you know, you know, it's like calling Ted Kaczynski right-wing and then you actually look what he wanted to do and what he was calling for, or, or Tim McVeigh, you know, all these guys. I define my terms in terms of left-wing stuff being identitarian, being, you know, um, uh, anti-capitalist, illiberal, obsessed with the cult of unity, all of these kinds of things. And there just wasn't as much of that on the actual radical right, what was called the actual radical right. But anyway, be all that as it may, one of the things I learned from the Walker book wasn't the existence of the sort of conspiracy theory as racket stuff from the 1960s. I mean, I, I knew bits and pieces about it, but I, I just didn't realize the extent of it and Walker gets into it in pretty great detail. There were just a whole bunch of people on the left back then who were sort of like Alex Jones, right? Alex Jones sometimes says things that are true as a way to convince you that things that are false are also true. It was, you know, you, you know half-truths are always more persuasive than whole lies. And so you had this whole underground counterculture uh, industry. There was this magazine called The Realist. There was this radio host called May Brussel. Brussel, I don't know how you pronounce it. There were the Yippies, right? These people, they, they intermingled actual investigatory journalism with utter and complete BS to just, just sort of like mess with the system by putting out conspiracy theories out there. And it was fun and it was funny and they enjoyed it. And um, the point of the G-File, at least in part, was that the problem with playing these sorts of games is that it's sort of unsustainable over time. And it kind of, it, it, it gets through your skin and gets into your blood. Um, and then breaks the blood brain barrier. And you actually, you can't sort of like, you can't be a porn director for very long before your own personal sex life starts to get really weird and sad. And you can't peddle fake 
stuff for very long, political pornography in effect, um, for very long until it starts to corrupt your own soul. I think that there's a lot of that going on um, with these guys. I don't know if Vivek Ramaswamy actually believes any of this garbage. He fakes sincerity pretty well if he doesn't, but it's clearly, I think it's clearly destructive and corrosive to his soul. You know, whether or not he believed or thought this way prior to running for president is a really interesting question from the people I've talked to who knew him. Um, and I've talked, I don't, I, I must've talked to a, a half dozen people over the last year who knew him kind of well. They, th they didn't think this was him. You know, they thought he was a pretty serious guy and all that kind of stuff. And so either he's faking it or he's not. And my point is that you can't sustain the, fake, the fakery indefinitely. I think Trump's actually a pretty good example of this kind of stuff. There's a lot of evidence that he knew he lost. But I think he believes he won now because sort of like George Costanza, it's not a lie if you believe it. He is able to convince himself of his own reality. It's a very sort of romantic thing um, in the essence of sort of romantic, in the spirit of romanticism, not like a Hallmark card movie, that he can just sort of will his own reality. And I think that like this kind of phenomenon is really dangerous on the right. And it's particularly dangerous because while even if you can sustain your con man grifty BS, your audience isn't necessarily doing that, right? I mean, some get that it's kayfabe, right? And, you know, I can see this, you know, I, you meet young people, interns at various places, uh, you know, college kids that I run into when I'm, you know, talking on campus and stuff. And not most of them. I mean, certainly there's a selection bias if you're coming to see me at this point, but not most of them, but a significant number of them. And some of them very smart believe big chunks of the BS that is being sort of spewed out there. And I don't know, I've been thinking about, you know, there's this great famous line from Eric Hoffer where he says, what is it? Every great cause begins as a movement, becomes a business and eventually degenerates and degenerates into a racket. I don't know that this stuff began as a great movement. I mean, I think you have to be really generous to Trump and to MAGA and all that stuff to say it began as a great movement. But I think it's fair to say it kind of began as a movement of sorts, right? It's clearly always, you know, it, it degenerated into a business in some respects pretty freaking quickly. And um, whether the MAGA stuff is a racket yet, you know, because he's running for office, it kind of complicates the thing. But I do think this the stuff that's Trump adjacent, it's kind of kind of turned some of it on its head. I think some of it began as a racket is becoming a movement. It kind of, I don't know, I, I, there are analogies to be made. Like, so the Tea Party movement, which I was very sympathetic to, I spoke to Tea Party rallies and all that kind of stuff. And um, uh, I think that started as a real movement. It turned into a business and it ended as a racket. And I wrote about this a bit back in the day, back when the Tea Party movement was still a thing and you're still getting emails from the Tea Party Express and all this kind of stuff. Jim Garrity uh, did some great stuff on this years ago about how utterly corrupt most of the Tea Party stuff had become. Basically what happened were like political consultants and scam packs and Dick Morris types and Dick Morris. Um, uh, that crowd saw money to be made in the enthusiasm of the Tea Party movement and just started bilking, you know, well-meaning, 
you know, little old ladies who signed up for a monthly $25 or $5 contribution, uh, recurring, eternally recurring, as Nietzsche might say, on their credit cards. By the end of it, it was just a grotesquerie. I mean, like, like Dick Morris would raise all this money from decent Americans who made the terrible mistake of taking Dick Morris seriously as a human being, you know, and these packs would give 5% or something. I mean, I should go find the the Garrity stuff, but it was like 5%, 10% of the money they raised would actually go to candidates and the rest would just go to taking care of themselves. So that's a really good sort of Hofferian example of movement turning into racket. But, you know, the second clan, now that I think about it, I've written about this before, but like, um, you know, the first clan was a thing, right? It was a organic thing that grew out of, you know, the civil war, right? And it was bad and it was evil and whatever. It was also mostly gone, the first clan, right? Uh, and then, you know, what brought it back was essentially birth of a nation. Uh, you know, this, one of the first great movies ever made. Um, God, what was his name? Hold on. D.W. Griffith. Sorry. And so in some ways, the second clan was really reborn as a sort of as a, as a pop culture movie cult kind of thing. And so that was sort of an example, because I mean, uh, Birth of a Nation is a brilliantly technically made movie. It's sort of, you know, it's comparable to Lily Reifenstahl's stuff. Um, it's technically brilliant, but, but for evil purposes um, and deeply propagandistic. You know, began as sort of kind of a commercial racket and became a movement. And so sometimes it just kind of works the other way around, it seems to me. I didn't want to get away from this Nietzsche thing just yet. I apologize. We're not going to, I'm not going to ask Adam to take this section and put it back there. But when I was talking to Berkowitz, I looked up while he was talking what I had written about this Richard Rorty and Nietzsche thing in liberal fascism because I just wanted to remember it. And then it turns out there's only just one throwaway line about it. But I, but this, but there's a passage or two that I think are sort of important to this larger point that I wanted to make that I started to make and then forgot to make and about, first of all, the 60s, the similarity between the right and the, and the counterculture left of the 1960s, right? The point I made in the G-File was that like, yeah, there was a radical right in the 1960s, but they were worried about foreign perversions by communists, you know, stealing our bodily fluids or whatever. They weren't that the American system itself, the constitution, all of these kinds of things were rigged or corrupt or no longer useful. That was the left wing thing. Now it's the right that makes those kinds of arguments. And that's really, really dangerous because a country, if the conservatives also become radicalized against, or they're not going to be, if they become radicalized, they're no longer conservatives. But if the right, which is an obvious home for conservatives, becomes mostly non-conservative and radicalized, I think that's incredibly dangerous for the United States of America or for any society because it is by, almost by definition, the conservatives are the ones who want to defend the existing order, the institutions, the, 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 the spirit and the ideas of the, of the founding. And if the right throws that away, it's not like the left is going to pick it up because that's just not the orientation of the left. And anyway, um, 
this is relevant to the Nietzsche stuff and not just because I saw this thing that I had pulled up on my computer that was still open that reminded me. So I should explain what Peter Berkowitz threw cold water on. Peter, I asked him whether he agreed with Rorty's view that, he that Nietzsche and Heidegger were to continental philosophy what essentially William James and John Dewey were to American philosophy. Now, I'm, I'm not going to give you all the background because you've heard me talk about some of this stuff before, but William James and John Dewey were basically the, the, the two biggest American pragmatists. And please don't send me emails defending Charles Pierce, which I think was actually pronounced Peirce, because he's the guy who invents the phrase pragmatism. Uh, but it is so quickly taken over by James and Dewey and these other people that Peirce eventually just abandons the use of the word pragmatism and opts for pragmaticism. So go have fun with that. I can't really explain the differences between them too much. Peirce's thing has more math in it. I'll just tell you that. Anyway, James and Dewey and a bunch of other you know, second-tier journalists and philosophers were the creators of American pragmatism, which was this basic idea of turning away from eternal truths, from, as Rorty would put it, capital T truths. This is where you get the, the, the cash value of truth kind of argument from James. It's where the harmless term pragmatism, our normal pragmatism, like pre being practical, gets a lot of its, you know, thinking it was just sort of like, don't get caught up on grand abstractions, just, you know, go with what works. My longstanding gripe against American pragmatism, and frankly, European pragmatism, philosophical pragmatism, is that it is a, it is used as a weapon to dismantle, debunk, destroy, delegitimize competing philosophies while leaving there, the American pragmatists own unstated, but no less real ideology stand unopposed, right? The cult of experts, the cult of progressive social engineers, technocracy, all of these things, these are fruits of American pragmatism to a large extent. What American pragmatism does is it basically slices and dices any philosophical opposition to this stuff, to what they want to do, by saying, look, we're just doing what works, and all you guys are crazy ideologues. We're just pragmatists. This is a big theme running through my underrated second book, Tyranny Clichés. It is a, something I can argue about for hours, but I'm already pretty deep in this rabbit hole. Heidegger and Nietzsche, according to Rorty, were also part of a similar process of overthrowing ancient, no longer relevant Western philosophies and about rethinking things from a new perspective. And Rorty thought that this was, in effect, a form of pragmatism. Now, he's not alone in this. You know, there's a, there's a line in Julian Benda's Treason of the Intellectuals where he talks about Nietzschean pragmatism. And there's a book I have somewhere in here, you know, the, the Worldwide Pragmatic Revolution. And there's some of this in Mussolini, who people forget was a real intellectual, much more of an intellectual than Hitler ever was. He claimed that William James was one of his biggest influences. He also claimed Nietzsche is a huge influence. Um, how true that is, people can debate. But uh, George Sorel, who was a massive influence on both Mussolini and Lenin, was really into marrying, as I think I put it somewhere, Nietzsche's will to power 
with William James's will to believe. And you can see how the two are sort of related is that, you know, if you just decide, as I was talking about earlier, the romantic thing, you know, where if you just convince yourself that what you want to be true is true, you start to, you can believe the lie, right? And that's sort of what Sorel was up to. That's why he was really into these ideas of myths, um, political myths, noble lies, all that stuff. Noble lies, a Plato thing. Anyway, I don't dispute, because Peter knows this stuff much better than I do, that Rorty was unfair or lazy um, in conflating Heidegger and Nietzsche and and James and Dewey. Where I think Peter is wrong is his response was a sober, serious, intellectual scholar's view of going with the actual texts. And what I was trying to get at in our conversation was that sometimes the texts or the ideas matter less than people realize. And really what they want are totems or symbols or stand-ins, shorthands, for what they want to do anyway. And so the, if, if there's an inquit movement building up that wants to do X, if you can time it just right and come out with a book that explains why God or reason requires X be done, those people will say, aha, see, we're really smart. This is the thing that we've been saying all along. There's this, this, this totem, this, this text, this scroll that confirms what we wanted to do anyway. That's sort of my point about how sometimes ideas are lagging rather than leading indicators. I think there is, for the middle brow, the, the, the journalist, the, the novelist, um, the filmmaker... You know, the, the, the people, this, the, the secondhand dealers in ideas, as I think Hayek called them, the people who manipulate words and images, the new class, all this kind of stuff, the similarities between what was going on in Europe and what was going on in America um, in terms of these two philosophical approaches, approaches are actually really pretty profound. Not a dispute of Peter's view to say that the argument can't be sustained in the actual texts of Heidegger and Nietzsche or Dewey and, 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 and James. That's fine. Lots of people, I mean, look what Nazis did with Nietzsche that can't be supported by the actual text. It doesn't mean that Nietzsche didn't have an influence. It was just that people used him for their purposes and read into him what they wanted to read into him. I have no idea how convoluted I've made this already, but stick with me for just a second. And so this general approach of what Nietzsche called philosophizing with a hammer, right? Just sort of tearing down the old idols, all that kind of stuff. You don't have to get into the specifics of the arguments to recognize that this was going on all over the place. There's a, I mean, here's a good example of it. Um, Relativism. Relativism was a deep and powerful concept in German historiography, in philosophy generally, in the 19th and early 20th century. Uh, everything was about relativism for the German historicists, for, you know, the sort of the, the critics of um, laissez-faire democratic capitalism, right? That what you didn't understand is you couldn't have these immutable rules. It's very tied in with pragmatism, right? You can't have these immutable rules that tie us down. You have to look at the context. This is where the... 
German word Einfühlung gets translated into a new English word called empathy for the first time. It's around this time. And so you have to understand things in their deepest, particularist concept um, and context. And so relativism is just in the freaking air. And then as Paul Johnson writes about at the beginning of modern times, Einstein's theory of relativity is confirmed by these, you know, these experiments with looking at the light bending around the sun or whatever it is. And boom, all of a sudden, relativity goes from being a useful philosophical thing to confirmed by science, right? Similarly, like notions of evolution, which are deeply tied up in all of this stuff too. Um, when Darwin comes out, that gives these ideas that people believed in any way this, this sort of scientific backstop to allow them to have even more confidence in what they're doing. And so it's, the, it's like for this reason that I think these approaches, these psychological approaches, these cultural approaches, which are informed by philosophy, aren't necessarily the product of philosophy. And so anyway, just let me read you two paragraphs from, from liberal fascism. For more than 60 years, liberals have insisted that the basilisk of fascism lies semi-dormant in the bloodstream of the political right. And yet, with the notable and complicated exceptions of Leo Strauss and Alan Bloom, no top-tier American conservative intellectual was a devotee of Nietzsche or a serious admirer of Heidegger. All major conservative schools of thought trace themselves back to the champions of the Enlightenment, John Locke, Adam Smith, Montesquieu, Burke, and none of them have direct intellectual link to Nazism or Nietzsche, to existentialism, nihilism, or even for the most part, capital P pragmatism. Meanwhile, the rank and file, meanwhile, the ranks of left-wing intellectuals are infested with ideas and thinkers squarely in the fascist tradition. And yet all it takes is the abracadabra word Marxist to absolve most of them of any affinity with these currents. The rest can get off the hook merely by attacking bourgeois morality and American values even though such attacks are themselves little better than a reprise of fascist arguments. In a seminar, there may be important distinctions to be made between, say, Foucault's enterprise of unreason, Derrida's tyrannical logocentrism, and Hitler's revolt against reason. But some distinctions rarely translate beyond ivy-covered walls, and they are particularly meaningless to a movement that believes action is more important than ideas. Deconstruction, existentialism, postmodernism, pragmatism, relativism. All of these ideas have the same purpose to erode the iron chains of tradition, dissolve the concrete foundations of truth, and firebomb the bunkers where the defenders of the Ansan regime still fought and persevered. These were ideologies of movement. The late Richard Rorty admitted as much, conflating Nietzsche and Heidegger with James and Dewey as part of the same grand project. Few were more adept at using the jargon of the movement than fascists and pre-fascists. Hitler used the phrase the movement over 200 times in Mein Kampf. A Nazi party journal was called the Bewegung, the movement. I'm going to hear from people about my pronunciation. The word movement itself is instructive. Movement, unlike progress, doesn't imply a fixed destination. Rather, it takes it as a given that any change is better. As Alan Bloom and others have noted, the core passion of fascism was self-assertion. The Nazis may have been striving for a utopian thousand-year Reich, but their first instincts were radical. Destroy what exists, tear it down, eradicate das System, another term shared by the new left and fascists alike. 
Quote, I have a barbaric concept of socialism, a young Mussolini once said. I understand it as the greatest act of negation and destruction. Onward, you new barbarians. Like all barbarians, you are harbingers of a new civilization. Hitler's instincts were even more destructive. Even before he ordered the obliteration of Paris and issued his scorched earth policy on German soil, his agenda was to rip apart everything the bourgeois had created, to destroy the reactionaries, to create new art and architecture, new culture, new religion, and most of all, new Germans. This project could only commence upon the ashes of Das System. And if he couldn't create, he could take solace in destroying. How exactly is this different from the burn baby burn ethos of the late 1960s? Now, again, you might find all sorts of objections you can make about some of that stuff. Like I was probably too hard on Nietzsche in that, I think. But you get the point. And my basic point now is that I think I was right in saying that a lot of the new left were objectively fascist if you defined fascism without appeal to glib, misleading, ideological, left-right stuff, right? Radical, cult of unity, strength in numbers. You know, the Black Power movement was, you know, particularly the Black Panthers was an ethnocentric, identitarian movement of uh, claiming racial superiority um, that was militantly opposed to liberal democratic capitalism and, and bourgeois values and, and all the rest, right? Uh, There's the cult of the deed, the cult of action, the obsession with, uh, with the street and the authenticity of the street, the authenticity of violence. I think I was right about how I described that stuff as being fascistic. It bothered a lot of people because again, it is contrary to the schema they set up to think something that is labeled left-wing can be fascistic, right? That's why the Antifa people just you know, reject any sort of criticism of, of their tactics because since they're anti-fascist, they have to be the good guy. That's what Antifa, if you don't know, Antifa is short for anti-fascist. There are a lot of people on the right now who have a very similar burn baby burn ethos to what the radical left had. A very, you know, like, and that's where this Taylor Swift stuff starts to get interesting again, is like, there is the the romance between this burly masculine jock and this jilted, very attractive uh, singer um, who's had bad experience, bad dating experience, this is like, this is the kind of stuff that 10 years ago conservatives would geek out over. It is like such an American story, you know, at, on, on an epic scale. And the idea that like, we should be, we should reject it. We should be horrified by it. Um, that's a really, it's, that's a, there's, a, there's a weird radical pose, you know, deep in that. There's an even deeper you know, much more Goebbels-like view involved here when you think it is totally justified to make up insane conspiracy theories. Um, and let's not forget, you know, Nazism lived and breathed conspiracy theories. That's what Nazism was, was a conspiracy theory turned into a movement. 
Um, Jews were behind everything. They convinced themselves that like literally it was a war for survival between the Jews and the Germans and only one could emerge. And, um, and that Jews were behind every sort of bad act. I should also say that Marx was a crazy conspiracy theorist who had all sorts of crazy ideas about like what the czar or the king of England were doing. And all, I mean, we can get into that some other time if you like. The, the problem with the conspiracy theory stuff is that it gets mixed up in this idea of you get to spread this stuff because you're trying to tell a higher truth um, or you're trying to operationalize a movement to take on your enemies. And since your enemies lie, you can lie too, but you're doing it for, for good purposes or you're just doing it to ha make a buck. And anyway, these things get all mixed together. You end up painting a picture where... Nobody has any agency. Nobody who's doing well deserves what they have. Um, it's a it's a very much a right wing version of the oppressor oppressed narrative. BS. It's I don't know, I, I I promised I wasn't going to get more into the Taylor Swift stuff, but I do think the right now, and I'm not saying that these guys. I mean, some of these guys are neo Nazis because they're literally neo Nazis, but. You know, Benny Johnson's not a Nazi. You know, he's he's an idiot. Um, and when I say he's an idiot, I don't mean he's not clever. He's one of these, for those of you who don't know, he's one of these social media influencers who, you know, has really been pushing this idea that uh, Taylor Swift is only famous because she's a DOD asset uh, as in Department of Defense. And, um, and that this is all a DOD Pfizer joint conspiracy. The Pfizer stuff comes into it because Travis Kelsey told people to get vaccinated. That's it. Told people to get vaccinated to a panda in a pandemic. Now, lots of people handled the pandemic badly. There was moral panic and conspiracy nonsense that took over a lot of the public health, um, bureaucracy at the CDC and elsewhere. I think Fauci did a lot of things that were misguided and and dishonest. He, he admitted as much that he lied several times for what he thought were justifiable reasons. That's all fun. But like the vaccine's good, right? And you know, you got these clowns saying that the vaccine killed 17 million Americans or something. I saw this the other day, one of those anti-vax guys, the guy who used to be at the New York Times, I can't remember his name and I don't want to. But there's this, you know, weird mix of uh, paranoia and delusion that informs all of this stuff. And it comes about from a radical mindset. And it's a very similar radical mindset to what we saw um, on the new left in the 1960s and well into the 1970s. And you can say, oh, it's not at all similar because left-wing, right-wing stuff. But like in this, I mean, I'm still a defender of the left-wing, right-wing paradigm. But in this, you know, I don't think left-wing radicalism and right-wing radicalism are very different things. I think that's where the horseshoe theory comes in, is that the second you embrace illiberalism, the second you embrace the idea, and, and the second you get rid of the importance of truth and facts, Ideological distinctions kind of melt away. I mean, they're still there to a certain extent. I mean, the kind of um, dictatorial regime 
the crazy hard left would put in place would be culturally different than the kind of crazy dictatorial regime um, the crazy far right would put in. But in terms of, it's sort of like, you know, and I know I do it all the time here, my thing about defending Fukuyama and, and, um, and Calvin Coolidge's 150th anniversary of the 4th of July speech. I think liberal democratic capitalism is barring some fundamental existential categorical shifting developments in technology of one kind or another. As long as human nature has no history and human nature is what it is, I think liberal democratic capitalism, with room for variation between different cultures and all of that kind of stuff, is the best we're ever going to get. We are at the mountaintop. There is not a better political system at scale, right? Because I'm all in favor of, you know, letting a thousand flowers bloom in little communities, small communities where people know each other. I think there's nothing wrong with having the Amish stay Amish and the ultra-Orthodox Jewish stay ultra-Orthodox. And if you want to have Greek Orthodox monasteries, you know, running farms, that's all great. That's all fine. They're not necessarily illiberal, but they're not liberal either, right? Because much like the family, the family can be non-liberal and that's fine. Um, sometimes it's necessary. You know, I am the boss of my child until she's 21 at least. And I would like to think a little while after, but whatever. Families don't operate as liberal regimes because different horses for different courses. But liberal democratic capitalism takes that into account. It has flex and give and subsidiarity and localism built into it that allow for these for a, not just for pluralism in terms of people, but pluralism in terms of different kinds of institutions and communities. And so long as people have the right of exit from these communities, um, they should have a lot of leeway at the local level to live the way they want to live, you know, barring things like murder or slavery, you know, rape, abuse, that kind of thing. But anyway, my point is, is that it does, like Fukuyama's point was basically correct. Um, about the end of history, about this is as good as it gets. He really wasn't talking about history as we understand the term, like events, the unfolding of events ending. But, and this is the defense you've heard me give a million times before, if you sort of metaphorically think about it as the history of humanity climbing up a mountain, in terms of not spiritual, not theological, not transcendent, terms, but in terms of politics and political economy, legal regimes, liberal democratic capitalism is the pinnacle. It's the summit. And, you know, when you start talking about how you need to go left or right and, and you know, and tear down liberal democratic capitalism in favor of you know, muscular socialism or fascism or communism or thisism or thatism. Or if you don't even have an idea of what ism you want, you just know that you want to tear it all down. It's not interesting whether you're going left or right. The important direction is that you're going down. You're going back to where you came. And that's sort of how I view all this stuff. And, you know, what I was less up on, you know, this is more of a theme of Suicide of the West, is that, you know, fascism really is just a perversion of I mean, perversion is maybe even the wrong word it's just a hyper 
indulgence of a very basic form of human nature. Um, you know, this cult of unity thing, this desire to be in a group, the desire to assert your group's dominance over other groups. The idea that, you know, that, that market exchange is bad because it, it erases the, the feeling of social solidarity that you get when everybody sits around the campfire and tears pieces off the gazelle or the elk or whatever and distributes things fairly to everybody right? That everybody's in um, the group. So ideologically, I see now, you know, like, so Mussolini is the guy who coins the term totalitarianism. And his definition of fascism, totalitarianism, I can't remember right at the second which one it was aimed at. But, you know, this famous line was his conception of how things should work was um, everything within the state, nothing outside of the state. And he didn't mean that in Orwellian terms. He meant that in terms of sort of tribalistic terms. Everybody was going to be part of the thing. Everybody was going to be included. No one was going to be left behind. Um, it was going to be um, inclusive, communal. That's his understanding of the state. And, and, and a lot of that stuff comes from, you know, real philosophical arguments about the role of the state. You know, there's a lot of that in Hegel and all that. Anyway, I now just, I more and more see radicalism and cults of unity really is psychological phenomena first and ideological or intellectual phenomena second. The people who get really fired up and really excited to join a mob aren't doing it because they read some book. They're doing it because there's something transcendent in the moment. There's something visceral, emotional, glandular about being part of something. Some people in order to sustain that or to make money off of it or to translate it into a coherent program or to be the leaders of it, they come up with intellectual justifications for and superstructures and framing to capture that feeling and to make it attractive and to, and to sustain it. But those projects aren't the cause of those feelings. They are exploitations the uh, rationalizations, intellectualizations of of that that desire, um, and that's sort of what I'm getting at with the idea that 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 ideas are often lagging indicators. They are often, not always, obviously, um, PR efforts in effect at a very high level of abstraction to justify efforts by individuals or or groups to attain power or dominance over other groups. And that is a very human part of human nature. That is human psychology at work as much as anything else. And the great, wonderful thing about liberal democratic capitalism is that it anticipated this. You know, this is the whole point about pitting faction against faction and about divided powers and separation of powers, I should say, and, and checks and balances, is that it understood that this was part of human nature and so what we needed were, you know, circuit breakers to prevent that glandular passion taking over all of the system at once and imposing tyranny, which is the natural form of government for the last 12,000 years, statistically speaking. Anyway, I don't want to, I'm, I'm now just getting deeper and deeper into my book stuff, but I hope somewhere in there that made some sense to people. I apologize. I'm going a mile a minute here for some reason. 
Oh, I've decided, you know, I know people don't like me talking about Twitter here and probably largely for good reasons. But um, I got to say, anti-NATO Twitter is way up there on the list of dumbest Twitters. Um, The things that people think are true or claim are true about NATO, the way in which large numbers of people seem to think that there's really no difference between, you know, the case against the UN and the case against NATO. I don't even think like, you know, the the uber-nationalist guys, the, you know, Yoram Hazoni crowd is anti-NATO. Like, you can be a full-throated nationalist and American firster and still be, if you're, if you're a serious, intellectually serious person, um, and still be for NATO. You can also be against NATO, right? But, like, there's nothing about NATO qua NATO that saps American sovereignty or is antithetical to our interests and I, mean, I wrote my LA Times column this week, uh, basically because I was just so pissed off at just the utter nonsense that Trump continues to peddle. And this is one of the problems I have is like, it's, uh, it's goalpost moving, right? I mean, when he was president, he rightly insisted that other NATO countries needed to spend more on defense, and he got a lot of them to do it, at least temporarily. And then the Ukraine invasion got more of them to do it. Because all of a sudden, a lot of these NATO members are like, holy crap, all that Fukuyama stuff notwithstanding, history ain't over. Russia's still a just incredibly dysfunctional, backward, corrupt country that justifies its existence through territorial expansion and, yes, settler colonialism. And they're like we got to like spend money on defense. Regardless, they're spending money on defense. Trump says, and they're spending money on Ukraine. They are spending more money on Ukraine than we are. The Europeans in total, the Europeans individually as a percentage of GDP are spending more than we are. Per capita, we rank 30th in in aid to Ukraine on the total number, right? Both civil, you know, stuff and military stuff. We look better on the pure military stuff, but as Mark Thiessen and others have pointed out, like MAGA crowd should be all in favor of the military stuff because what we're doing is, you know, I mean, I thought these guys liked industrial policy and, you know, and Keynesian multipliers when it came to like American industry in red states. The military aid, almost none of it is in the form of a cash payment or a blank check. What we're doing is we're taking our older stuff our more obsolete stuff and sending it over there. And then those dollars are going towards American companies to make new stuff. You know, so those dollars are staying here. They're not going to some made up, you know, dacha of, you know, Zelensky's or anything like that. Anyways, like Trump's argument about NATO was that, you know, he always continually talks about NATO as if there is a, like a NATO army that there's a standing NATO thing, NATO army that, and that is paid for by the dues of member states and that we have been covering the tab of other members' dues for a very long time. And yes, we've been paying more than other countries. Other countries haven't been paying enough until recently. Those are all perfectly legitimate complaints. There are answers to them, but they're legitimate complaints. 
There's also a legitimate complaint, which I've written about for years, about one of the problems with NATO was that we were subsidizing European welfare states, which is definitely true. Those are all arguments to be made about improving NATO, not about getting rid of NATO. And the simple fact is, is that NATO doesn't collect dues like that. What we spend on our military budget is what we spend on our military budget. The actual budget of NATO, right, like the building with the parking lot and the people who get a paycheck from NATO is like three and a half billion dollars a year, which is like a, 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 between a tenth and a twentieth of what a new aircraft carrier costs. And we cover uh, last I when I looked at it for the column, it was I think it was 16 percent of the of NATO's budget. Right. But Trump talks about it as if like we've been carrying the whole burden for all these other countries all this time. And it's just not true. He also lied about how much money we were giving to we gave to Ukraine and how little the Europeans gave. He got all that wrong. But the point is, is that he moves the goalposts, go, the goalposts. Before his complaint was they're not paying enough. They're not carrying their burden. Now that they're carrying their burden, he says, yeah, that's not the real issue. The issue is, is that they would never come to our aid if we got into trouble. Um, they're unreliable, so we shouldn't be in NATO anymore. Um, leaving aside the fact that the only time Article 5 of the NATO Charter, which says an attack on one is an attack on all, was after 9-11 when they all got our backs and committed blood and treasure in the war on terror in Afghanistan and Iraq for 20 years, you know, in terms of Afghanistan. It's just all such bad faith stuff. When I called out this stuff on Twitter, just the stupidity and dishonesty of so many people. Again, I, I can't, have no problem with people criticizing NATO. I can even have debates with people about getting out of NATO if they're serious debates based on actual facts. But Trump doesn't have the facts on his side. If he did, he would deploy them. Right? He wouldn't lie. You know, Irving Kristol made an argument about getting out of NATO in the, I want to say in the 90s, but maybe it was the late 80s. I thought he was wrong back then, and everyone knows how much I love Irving Crystal. But uh, there are serious arguments to be made about this stuff. But regardless of those, how serious some of those arguments can be made, they all strike me as unbelievably stupid to be making right now. You know, the idea that in the face of Chinese rearmament, or armament, right? I mean, they are building up their military at a breakneck pace. They are basically all but screaming that they are going to take Taiwan. Russia is talking about how it's going to be a threat to the Baltics, who are members of NATO. Brussels, all these governments have talked about how, you know, Russia is not going to end with Ukraine. It is the ultimate strategic goal of Vladimir Putin to end or divide NATO. And I understand that, you know, Trump sounds tough by questioning the, you know, the conventional wisdom of elites and saying NATO is bad and, you know, go Trump, go, you brave, you know, truth teller kind of thing. And so they think he sounds tough, but on a geopolitical scale, what he is signaling is profound weakness, a profound lack of willpower and seriousness by the American, you know, um, by one of the, by the leader of one of America's two main political parties. And the inability to, of Republicans to speak out against this is really depressing to me. 
yeah, they've very quietly passed some legislation to make it impossible for a president to pull out of NATO unilaterally. And that's, that's good. Good for you guys. But it, I have very little confidence that if Trump started making this a priority that, you know, forget Josh Hawley and J.D. Vance, um, you know, Lindsey Graham clearly knows better and those guys wouldn't fall in line. And that's one of the things that, you know, gives Putin a reason to keep fighting and, and as aggressively as he can. is like there's a reasonable belief that if Trump wins, help is on the way. It's just so idiotic. It's like, look, again, problems with NATO, but NATO amplifies our power. NATO lets us project force much further out into the world than um, we could on our own. NATO is the protective guard with our single largest trading partner. You know, we trade enormously with the EU. And the idea, you know, like, again, I have written countless times against, you know, excessive multilateralism. You know, my standard line used to be that a lot of people seem to think it's better to be wrong in a big group than right alone. But NATO doesn't constrain us from doing things that we want to do that, you know, if NATO doesn't have to go along with them, but NATO amplifies our power and reduces our risks to, to American lives and American treasure but when they go along with us, this is the dumbest possible moment to be like saying, oh, yeah, NATO's outlived its utility. That argument, you can make that argument in 1995. Sure. Making it in 2024 is just so counterproductive and so dangerous and so stupid. Anyway, enough with all that. Um, I guess I don't have to go any further. I've talked for an hour and a half. Good God. I really apologize about the zigging and zagging and all that. Very sorry to hear about the messenger. There were some good people there. We can't hire them all. But it does show you, for those of you who don't know, there was this media outlet called the messenger. They blew through $50 million, hired way up, and then really cruelly and asininely fired everybody this week. Um, without proper notice, without several, I mean, there are going to be lawsuits. It was really just a very, very ugly thing um, after only being around only seven months. And I take no pleasure in the struggles of other media outlets. You know, I've been writing for the LA Times for, I don't know, 16 years now, something like that. And the layoffs there are pretty brutal. I'm, I survived them. That's, that's fine. Um, and I'm, I'm glad for it. Uh, but this is a terrible time in for a lot of people in journalism and a very rough time. And I think that's few people have complained about liberal media bias more than me, but the, me like the messenger wasn't liberal um, necessarily at least. And lots of places are struggling. Um, so I take no pleasure in seeing people lose their jobs um, in, a, in a bad work environment to begin with. But it also does give me some pride that we are still chugging along. A lot of work to do. We raised a just a little more than a tenth of the money that the messenger did, you know, over four years ago. And, you know, we're still growing. And it's, again, I don't say it in a gloating way, but it's confirmation that we're kind of, we've kind of done things the right way. But it's also an opportunity to say, this is a real tough environment for a lot of places, including the dispatch. Um, you know, we got headwinds for us too. We are making a big bet on coverage of politics in 2024, and we want it to start, and we want to, you know, parlay that 
the bet we're making into a bet of expanding coverage, breaking out into different beats beyond sort of politics and Washington policy stuff, that requires more subscribers, first and foremost. We're going to get into some stuff with sponsorships and events and all that kind of stuff, but we are first and foremost a, a, a subscriber first, a reader first publication. And if you're on the fence about subscribing, but you think what we're doing is important, or you just think it's important to keep institutions like the dispatch around during this, this, in, in this environment, please think about subscribing, you know, and I don't think you'll be disappointed. I think, you know, if he, I personally think, you know, forget the G file, like, you know, Kevin Williamson, Nick Cotogio, um, our dispatch politics newsletter, our collision newsletter, and the morning dispatch are wildly underpriced given the quality and the information and the seriousness and the, the, the way we think that we should not waste our readers' times. And of course, you could spend a lot of time reading everything we have. I'm a huge fan of um, Scott Linscombe's stuff. Nobody else is doing what he's doing in terms of sort of really looking under the hood at the crappy arguments of people who don't like free trade and free markets in a way that's accessible, but also, you know, pretty detailed and serious. And um, anyway, think about it. Please subscribe if you can. You also, you know, give our podcast some good ratings if you can and all that kind of stuff. I'm just asking you to help us out, you know, help us help you. And um, other than, oh, I'm, I'm on kind of vacation coming up and I don't know what that's going to do to the podcast schedule, but we'll figure all that out. And uh, other than that, I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>